uh, uh, real quick before we get started, who was ever in a group that got disciplined or punished? Uh, was it like a sports team? Did you have to run lines or run laps? <laughs> that sounds worse than running lines. Behavior modification training. What, were you at fault or, or were you like pretty good but your team was at fault? Okay, and you, were you on the losing team? Okay, yeah. So sometimes, sometimes we have to suffer, um, even, even if we weren't directly at fault, sometimes the group that we are in uh, gets punished, but oftentimes we are a part of that group failure. Okay, tonight we're going to talk about the exile. Um, I don't have a clicker, so I really apologize to you back there running my slides because... <laughs> I have slides, but that's okay. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to talk about the exile. Uh, what is the exile? The exile is one of the major events of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the big crisis of the Old Testament. Um, and in many, ways, uh, in, in many ways, its repercussions are still not over. They're, they pour into our day-to-day, -day and they won't be resolved until... The Lord comes back. Um, but it, it is a major uh, part of the Old Testament, and it, it sets the stage for a lot of what takes place in the New Testament. And so it's a very important part uh, of the Bible. And I'd say, I'd say even, even though it's not talked about nearly as much, it is equally important as the Exodus. So just to try to set that up for you guys. Okay, to... To explain the exile, we have to back up. We're going to give some context. Now, some of this should be a review because I know you all have been um, on uh, a really awesome series starting at the beginning of the Bible and going all the way through. So, next slide. We're going to look at some promises and some covenants. And they, this should give you the, um, the context, the importance of the exile. I'm just going to kind of signal every time I want the next slide. So if, if you can, just like watch me for this signal. All right, that's good. <clears throat> okay, what happened in Genesis 3? The fall. Yes, and what did God say in Genesis 3.15? He said, he made a promise. He, he, he said... Um, he promised a seed through the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent and his heel would be bruised by the serpent. And in context, what that's implying is someday a descendant from Eve would fix the curse, would reverse the fall and restore what was lost in the fall. Two things that were lost in the fall, fellowship with God and God's dominion over the earth. His delegated authority on the earth was lost. The earth went from being a delegated realm of God's kingdom to a place of rebellion. So that's what was lost in the fall, but God promised to fix it. Fast forward what happens in 
Genesis 12. The call of Abraham, that's right. So God takes Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and he gives him promises. Does anybody remember some of the things that God promised Abraham? Yeah, he would make a great nation from him, from his descendants, right? What else? And through his descendants, he would bless the whole world. Now, in context of Genesis, remember, it's in, it's in the same literary context as Genesis 3.15. That blessing on the whole world means that seed of the woman, that promised one that would reverse the curse and um, bring back dominion and fellowship with God, this promised one would come through Abraham. Okay, in Genesis 15, now God had already made these promises to Abraham, but in Genesis 15, Abraham asks God, uh, how, how will I know that I will inherit this land? That was the other thing that God promised him, that his descendants would inherit a special land, a promised land, right? And God, or Abraham asked God, how will I know? And God responds by making a peculiar covenant. Does anybody know what a covenant is? Uh, it's kind of a promise. It's, uh, it, it goes hand in hand with a promise. But more basic than that, it's an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties. You do this, I will do this. But this covenant is unique. And if you read about it in Genesis 15, what's unique about it is that only God takes responsibility in the covenant. Abraham doesn't have any responsibilities in this covenant. So it's basically just God confirming his promise to Abraham. So God put no stipulations on his promise to Abraham. He just made a promise to him that he would, uh, his descendants would be a great nation, that they would have a land, and that all the world would be blessed through them. No strings attached, like the meme, right? No strings attached. No, uh, Abraham did not have any part to play or responsibilities to uphold that deal. That was just a promise from God. Uh, again, Abrahamic covenant was a covenant for inheriting the land. It was a covenant for worldwide blessing through his descendants, especially one descendant. And it was a one-sided, unconditional covenant. All right, moving on. Fast forward to the time of King David. And this is what's called the Davidic Covenant. Um, God makes a promise to King David. Next slide. In Psalm 83, uh, the Bible calls this promise a covenant as well. God says to David, I have sworn, I, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne through all generations. And lots of the Psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and many others, expound on the Davidic covenant. And what we learn is that uh, this promised one, the seed of the woman that would come through Abraham, would also come through the line of David, and he would be a ruler over Israel, and, and he would be the means by which the whole world would be blessed, and that God's dominion on the earth would be restored, 
and fellowship with God and mankind would be restored for all the world, not just Israel, but all the world through Israel's king. Um, okay, next one. Okay, so to recap the promises and covenants, we already did that. We can move on. Uh, again, these promises and covenants will restore God's kingdom on the earth and restore God's fellowship with man. That's, the, that's like in the mind of the Israelites when we come to what we're going to talk about tonight. So moving forward, okay. What happened right after the exodus? There, God brings Israel, the descendants of Abraham, out of Egypt, and he brings them to a place called Mount Sinai. What happens there? Yeah, the Ten Commandments are given. What's another name for the, the larger covenant that includes the Ten Commandments? Does anybody know? Yeah, the law, the law of Moses, right? The Mosaic Covenant happens at Sinai. Um, next slide. Okay, so, for example, God says... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Notice that word if. So what's different about this covenant from the previous covenants? This is, this is a two-sided covenant. This is kind of a normal covenant. I will do this if you do this. And if you don't do this, there will be consequences. For example, and uh, at multiple points in the giving of the covenant, all the people answered and said together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they have, a bar, they have a side of this covenant that they're upholding. If we obey, God will bless us. Uh, here's one example, and this gives us uh, a sense of the character of the Mosaic covenant. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and then it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So notice, the Mosaic Covenant has a lot of references to their life, the Israelites' life in the land. Uh, let's try an illustration real quick. So let's, this is kind of like God told Abraham, see that house over there? I will give that house to your son. You don't have a son yet, but when he's born, I will give that house to your son. No strings attached. Like in, the, in City Hall, the title deed of that house will have your name on it and your descendants' names on it. That house belongs to you. It will belong to your son. End of story. So son gets born, grows up, time to move out. God brings this son of Abraham to the house and says, I'm giving you this house, but there are some rules for living in this house. And here's the Mosaic Covenant. So there's going to be consequences for you not uh, following these rules in this house. And we're going to move on. So this is a two-sided covenant. It's a covenant for dwelling in the land. So it's like an agreement. This is your, 
This is your agreement. This is the covenant for you dwelling in this house. And there's some consequences. One of the consequences is, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate, which means empty, and your cities waste. In other words, if you fail at upholding your side of this covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. So how did they do? <laughs> Real quick, before we get into how did they do, why should the rest of the world care? Why should we care about how Israel did? So thinking back to the Abrahamic covenant, it's through the descendants of Abraham that all the world would be blessed and that the curse of sin would be reversed and that God's good rule over the earth would be restored. So the rest of the world has a stake in how well Israel does, right? And not only that, um, Israel had every advantage. God gave them every advantage to keep his good law. Um, and if they fail, what does that say to the rest of the world? What does that say to the other nations that don't have all those advantages? We would have failed too. Every other nation would have failed too. So if they fail, that condemns everybody else. Okay, so let's turn. If you have the text in front of you, I think I saw Michael handing that out. You can read along with me. But this is our text tonight. This is what you'll be looking at in your small groups. The prophet Jeremiah in around 600 B.C., uh, 580 B.C., somewhere in there, he says to the people of Judah, the people of Israel, The Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Again, remember, they're given the land. The, the house is in their name, but... They are breaking the covenant for dwelling and enjoying, dwelling in and enjoying the house, the land, right? So, um, the prophets were telling them, do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, and do not provoke me, God, to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Their entire history, from the moment God brought them out of Egypt until right now, has been constant failure. Constant failure to obey God's law. And he's been merciful with them for almost 500 years. And finally, he, um, he has to enact that, uh, that consequence that we read about from Leviticus. So next slide. Okay, so looking at verse 8 and 9 of our passage. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, 
and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. And this captivity would last 70 years. They would serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, again, why captivity? Because they broke the covenant. And one of the consequences was captivity. And let's talk real quick about why 70 years. Second Chronicles 36, 21 says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This is kind of an aside, but it's kind of a key point. If you're reading about the exile, this question comes up. Uh, this passage from Chronicles explains why God sent them into captivity for 70 years. It was because of one of the laws in the Mosaic Covenant. They were supposed to uh, keep the Sabbath every week, right? Work six days, then rest on the seventh day. Well, there was another one, uh, another similar law. They were supposed to um, plant crops and harvest for six years and then rest on the seventh year and don't harvest any crops. And that takes a lot of faith to not worry about farming and trust the Lord that he will provide enough on the sixth year. And do you know how many times that they obeyed that law? Zero. They were, they were in the land from the time of Exodus until the time of exile about 490 years. And 490 divided by seven is 70. And so God <laughs> counted each one of those and said, I will send you away from this land and let it rest for all those years that you didn't trust me enough to let the land rest. And then uh, we already talked a little bit about this, but um, it's <laughs> when we're looking at the disciples' failures in the Bible or Israel's failures in the Bible, it's always good to keep in mind oh, I would not have done any better, right? And again, Israel had every advantage. No other nation had advantages like her. We read about those in Romans 9, 4. Paul lists them real quick. And the point is, their failure condemns everybody else. And so when God sends them into exile, he's really pronouncing judgment on all the nations, that they are under judgment. Uh, and like Israel, we need grace. Yeah, again, uh, he says in verse 29, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name, and should you be utterly unpunished? You should not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. So again, the exile is not just a judgment on Israel, it's a judgment on the whole world. Okay, real quick uh, timeline here. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. So ends the independence of the Davidic dynasty. And now Israel is under the authority of a Gentile king. Um, from that point on, really, in some ways, until 
until today. Um, in 597 BC, uh, another, so Nebuchadnezzar kind of sets up a, a puppet king and leaves, uh, but then that puppet king rebels and he comes back and takes more captives and sets up another puppet king. And then that one rebels, and finally he's had enough in 586 B.C., and he levels the city, destroys the temple, and either kills, uh, just kills everybody, and uh, takes, takes a whole bunch more captive and, and kills everybody else. And so the, the land is basically empty at that point, and the city of Jerusalem is toast, and all of Israel is in captivity a few hundred miles away in um, Babylon. Okay, but Jeremiah was not done prophesying. He says, After 70 years I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. Because they're not innocent in this, and they, what they mean for evil, God is using, but God is not endorsing that evil. And so what happens next? In 539 B.C., about 70 years after the initial attack on Jerusalem in 605 BC, Babylon is conquered by another kingdom called Persia. Okay. So they failed the Mosaic Covenant. But remember those other promises and covenants lying, be lying behind and before the Mosaic Covenant. Because God is not going to let his good plan depend on human failure. And so, there's still hope. In Jeremiah 29, which should also be on your paper, Jeremiah writes a letter to the captives. He says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God loves his people, and he, he made a covenant with Abraham and a promise to him that didn't depend on the performance of Abraham or his descendants. And so he's going to keep a remnant alive and he's going to bless them and eventually bring them back to the land. And sure enough, uh, after Cyrus the Persian conquers Babylon, uh, uh, about a year later, he makes a decree and lets the captive Israelites go back to their own land and rebuild their temple and their city. And in 516 B.C., exactly 70 years after the temple was destroyed, the, uh, Ezra and the Israelites finished the new temple. And then um, next comes the time of Nehemiah and Malachi, and they rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and so ends the Old Testament. Okay, but that Mosaic Covenant is still in place and it's still a problem because man fails at it. We've already seen that man can't keep it and nations can't keep it. Israel can't keep it. So what does Jeremiah do next? He promises a new covenant. We read about this in Ezekiel, which is another 
exilic book, a book during and about the exile. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both promise a new covenant that would replace the Mosaic covenant. And this new covenant, just like the Davidic and the Abrahamic, is a one-sided covenant. It only depends on God. It doesn't depend on the performance of the people. Okay, so we're, we're about out of time. We'll go to small groups soon. But uh, what does the exile speak? What does the exile tell us? Um, it tells us a lot. It tells us the, con- the context of the Bible, um, but it also illustrates God's faithfulness to us. It shows us... Uh, it illustrates for us the difference between our standing before God and our state or our practical um, performance. So as Christians, if we are in Christ, there's nothing we can do to change that. So when we fail, um, when we sin, There is consequences for that. There are temporal consequences for that. But that doesn't change our relationship to God. That doesn't change uh, who we are in Christ. And so that's one, uh, one illustration of the exile that we can take with us. Another one is that the exile is a, a theme of the New Testament. And Peter uh, compares the Christian walk um, the church's position in many ways to the exile. So he says in 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And the next time you read the book of 1 Peter, think about the book of Daniel, which chronicles uh, Daniel and his friends during the, the exile. They're in a hostile environment, li- trying to live a godly life. And First Peter, in many ways, is about how to live a Christian life in a hostile to Christian environment. And more and more every day, we see the world around us grow hostile to our faith, And in many places around the world, it's openly hostile and way worse than we have it here. Uh, And so we can learn a lot from uh, the faith of the Jewish exiles in Babylon in a hostile environment and how to trust God through that. Because just like them, God has a future and a hope planned for us. And so with that, I will end and we'll turn over to small groups. Thanks, everybody.